I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. What's up, everyone? Welcome back for a brand new edition of Collider Ladies Night. I am very excited to welcome Haley Lou Richardson to the show for, of course, White Lotus Season 2. But you have so many incredible titles on your filmography that I'm very eager to touch on today. So hello. Welcome. Congratulations. Hi. Thank you. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) All right. See. You have not been warned. The first order of business on Collider Ladies Night is we play a game called Dicey Questions. Usually that involves a dice tower. The dice tower did not travel to the East Coast with me, so you will be picking your own numbers. I've got eight questions here. You give me three random numbers, and whatever we land on, that is where we start our conversation, at least. Okay, two. I have to give you two more numbers? Let's just start with one, because the odds of me remembering all three are slim to none. Okay, yeah, me too. Number two is a deserted island. You are trapped on a deserted island. You absolutely must pick one White Lotus season two character to be trapped there with you. Who do you pick and why? Well, my go-to is Lucia (laughs) because she's a good time. It would be a good time on that deserted island with her. I know that much. Fair enough. I can't really think of a better option. So you picked the right person. All right. What is your second number? Three. (laughs) All right. Solid choice. My lucky number. This one is called Never Again. What is something that you did for a role in a pet in the past that now makes you say to yourself, I'm really glad I tried that at one point, but I never have to do that again. I never say never. Uh, but for this movie, Five Feet Apart, I worked with a nutritionist to um, lose weight. Uh, and it was like because I was playing this girl with cystic fibrosis in that movie. And it's very hard when you have that for your body to um, like retain nutrients and like maintain a healthy weight. So I was like really just trying to, you know, embody as close to like the the truth of, of that character as I could be. And that was really hard for me, uh, to 
to be on a diet for those couple months. And it was a very strict diet. Like I couldn't even eat um, potatoes or squash because they're starchy vegetables. <laughs> so that was really tough for me. I can't imagine myself doing that in the near future again. Uh, but, you know, never say never because it's important, I think, as a part of my job to do justice to whatever character I'm playing. But yeah, that was a tough one. Well, well worth everything that went into that role. That is a very good one, but I do like the never say never approach there. All right, you have one more number here. What's the last one you got? I want to say four, but I'm going to switch it up and say nine. <laughs> there is no nine. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to switch it up and say 70. You are not the only one. I promise you that. <laughs> I'm going to switch it up and say 12. Now I'm going to switch it up and say one. Okay. Here, here's another good one that I like a lot. This is called high low. Can you give us one audition high, but also one audition low and tell us how you overcame that low? Okay. I can't think of really any highs off the top of my head, but I can think of a jillion lows and probably one of the lowest of the lows was actually like my first year, probably my first couple months living in LA, I was like 16. Okay. I was a child and it was for Disney. It was a Disney channel audition for Disney channel, original movie, which makes this pretty dark. What I'm about to tell you, I walk in and I'm like so nervous. Okay. And I'm auditioning for this like cheerleader character. And I just remember being so nervous. And you know how sometimes you get so nervous that you're like, you're like nervous smiling. And the casting director literally stopped me after a couple lines and was like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But like, you're smiling through every line. Like, why are you smiling? And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, I'm just, I'm sorry. I'm, and I was like literally trying to push my cheeks down. And then she was like, just take a breath and try not to smile. And I was like, okay, which then obviously made me even more nervous. And then I was smiling even more. And then she stopped me like after a few more lines and she was like, I'm sorry, but are you wearing perfume? And I was like, I think I sprayed some body spray on me. I'm so sorry. <laughs> like, is it too much? And she was like, yeah, it's giving me a headache. I was like, oh no, I'm so sorry. My cheeks at this point, I was like, my cheeks were literally up to here and I had the most, it was horrid. I finally got through the scene. I was like walking to leave and I start, I felt like my eyes starting to water because it was really, you know, an, an awful feeling and experience. And right as I was like opening the door, she was like, wait, can you sing? And I was like, yeah, I'm tone deaf. I can't sing, but I tried and I started singing for whatever reason, hit the road, Jack. Don't, don't, don't ask. I don't know why that one came to me, but I started attempting to sing Hit the Road Jack and I was like crying and my face was so like stiff and it was horrible and I was shaking. And she literally stopped me after like the first verse and said, next. And then I left. Oh my God. Yeah. That's pretty rough, right? Like that's pretty traumatic. <laughs> There's a lot of things in that story. For Disney Channel 2 and I was 16. Like that's that's dark. 
I really, I can't even begin to process how, I can't process how any actor goes through the audition process regularly and runs the risk of facing rejection often, but especially at that age when I know I didn't have like the capacity to process stuff like that and move on. So I applaud you all all day long for actually going through that and then forging forward. Yeah, I don't know how I continued acting. Like, I don't know how... Honestly, I'm pretty proud of little 16-year-old me because, like, I don't think 27-year-old me could handle something like that, like, now. Like, I don't know how. I must have been very motivated. We are going to get to some of that. So getting into the meat of our conversation now, every single Collider Ladies Night begins here. What was the movie, the performance, personal experience, you name it, that first made you say to yourself, I have to be an actor and nothing else? Oh, man. Well, I think, honestly, like you know, and this is going to make my audition story even sadder and darker because something that I think inspired me so much when I was a kid was like Disney and Nickelodeon, like watching those shows and those kids my age, I was like, this is my personality. This is what I'm like. Like I, and also I'm a ham. (laughs) I like love performing and like, um, making people laugh and like, I could do that. And, uh, so I honestly think like watching like the Amanda show, um, yeah, Amanda Bynes was a big one for me. Um, and I would watch, uh, I would watch Big Fat Liar like over and over. I literally just watched it a couple weeks ago with my dad because it's our favorite movie. But yeah, Amanda Bynes was like, I just watched her and I was like, that's me. Like, <laughs> that's me. And, uh, so I, I think, um, that kind of maybe subconsciously was like inspiring me. Um, from when I was pretty young. And then, you know, I got to like 14, 15, 16 years old. And I was like, I could be doing that maybe. Of course, I didn't end up doing that. (laughs) And I met a mean casting director that stood in my way. But, um, but yeah, they, those were big, like inspirations for me, because I just really saw myself in a lot of those characters that I was watching. I was just talking to someone else who who like very specifically said, you may not get to do the thing that you originally envisioned for yourself, but as long as you like keep feeding yourself with the stuff that is uh, creatively fulfilling for you, ultimately it'll broaden your paths and you'll wind up getting something that is uh, creatively fulfilling that you didn't expect. So that was just on my mind as you were explaining that. <laughs> yeah, that's, I think that's totally it. And I think that's actually exactly what happened for me. Like, watching Disney and Nickelodeon when I was a kid is what I think got that like itch inside me of like, Oh, like I could be there. I could be doing this kind of stuff. But then when I moved to LA and none of those things happened for me. And then I, uh, kind of the first thing that I really ever did as an actor that like awoke, like my true kind of like, potential love for actually acting and like this whole world of like kind of giving your emotion to something on a, on a deep real level and like how fulfilling that is and how collaborative that is and how just like um alive and like empathetic and wonderful that is I think the first experience I had that was like the polar opposite of a Disney Channel show was this independent film called The Last Survivors that I did when I was 17. And I, you know, was like the hero of this post-apocalyptic like movie. And I got to like 
yeah, I got to kind of carry this movie, which was terrifying for me as a 17 year old. Cause I really didn't know what I was doing at all, but it was also like such an incredible learning experience and wake up call to be like, Whoa, this is why I moved to LA. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is what I want to do. Like till I'm dead, like this kind of stuff. So, um, yeah. I have so many follow-up questions. First, I want to go back to first moving to LA. When you moved to LA, what did you initially think the first step to becoming a working actor was? And then ultimately looking back, would you actually recommend that step to someone else or did you find something more effective along the way? First step to becoming a working actor. Honestly, I remember when I, I moved to LA with my mom, um, my mom and dad, like both sacrificed a lot for a year and a half. Like they, they paid for it. They, you know, they were apart from each other for a year and a half while my mom was living with me. My mom literally like kind of put her job on the side and was like there for me and supporting me. Um, it was really incredible what they did for their kid. Um, but, and it also just made me feel like so like supported and like worth it or something. Like it made me feel like people already believed in me. Um, But I remember my mom and I were just so like, there was a kind of a desperation. Like there was this like motivated, like desperation, honestly, of just like throwing myself at anything that would stick, like trying just like, anything like um meeting like my mom and dad and I would talk about like anyone that any connections that we possibly knew that were like friends of a friend or like someone they went to high school with or someone I knew from a dance competition that like is a working dancer like my mom and I just were constantly like going to lunch or meeting for coffee with these random people that was like anyone we knew that was connected that could just like give me any sort of like advice or insight or something um, to just learn. I guess that's more so where the desperation came from was just like learning anything I possibly could, um, you know, to like try to understand this place and understand like what I really wanted out of it and how I fit into it all. Um, So yeah, I mean, I guess you can't do that forever. You can't have that like I mean, I I do still think I have this like deep kind of curiosity and like want to like learn. Um, But yeah, I I don't think it's that bad to be a little bit desperate. Like when you first start out, like it's kind of how you, that calling and that passion was just like so intense for me that it like, it kind of just felt like, like a positive desperation, I guess. It's a po- it's a positive desperation and 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 also I feel like when you're fir- when you're first starting out like I know you want to get only roles and only projects that speak to you but if you don't you know kind of put it all out there and gain experience then it won't wind up serving the projects that actually do speak to you well in the future for sure and you learn from things always but especially early on like if you try something you know if you like audition for a character and you get it, which is very rare. And then you do it and you're like, oh, that kind of character didn't actually connect to me. Or like, 
I didn't like these people I worked with or like this type of project didn't really align with like the kinds of things that I feel like I want to be giving or whatever. Like you, you have to kind of go through those, or at least I feel like I did, um, earlier on to be able to get to a place where like, now I'm so clear about what I like connect to and what I want to do and the types of projects and people like that I'm like drawn to, um, and, and inspired by. So, um, you know, you learn from the, the things that do click and you learn from the things that don't. So, yeah. With that in mind, of all of your earliest films and shows, which one would you say helped you, you know, put your goals into focus the most in terms of, you know, walking away from the project and saying like, I do or do not want to tell stories like that. I want to work with people who run their sets like that. Things that fall in that department. Oh man, honestly, I did this uh, movie called Columbus with this guy, Koganata, who's um, like the biggest gift that's ever come into my life. Um, I just, he really, <laughs> he really screwed me up <coughs> because um, making that movie having that experience, the way that he like, we connected and he like, I felt like he trusted me and I felt like he invited me to, you know, do it with him. I didn't feel like a puzzle piece. I, I trusted him so much. I was so deeply just like inspired by him. Um, I think that it, it screwed me up because after doing that movie, I like read scripts and I'm like, this isn't Columbus. Like, or, or I'll meet with someone and I'm like, well, you know, he's not Koganata. Like it didn't. So it's, um, it's, it's amazing because it showed me this beautiful thing that, that is possible, but it also, you know, fucked me up because there, that's very rare that kind of collaboration and that kind of like relationship and experience is so rare. Okay. Kind of, kind of building on that idea a little bit, but not in terms of like, it's so rare and I'll never have an experience like that again. Is there any particular scene you've done thus far where you kind of walked away from it? Like so incredibly proud of yourself and thinking like, if I could make that happen, if I could do that, I can do anything. No. <laughs> Um, so easy for me to ask about confidence in other people, but then I'm like, when I look at myself, I'm like, I can't do that. What business do I have asking anybody else for that? Yeah. I mean, that's an intense feeling, like what you just described of like walking away and being like, if I can do that, I can do anything. Haley, you rock. You're the best. Like, no, I've never felt that. There's definitely been moments where I, I finish a scene and I kind of like have to come back to reality. And that feels really powerful in and of itself because it's like, whoa, I was somewhere else. I was, I was actually like, my feelings were coming from me, but they were coming from, um, like, uh, you know, another person. I don't know if that sounds dumb, but like, there's times where I felt that, and that feels so, um, yeah, it feels very fulfilling, and it feels like. And you feel like after scenes like that, you feel like, 
I guess a level of accomplishment or like a level of relief, I think is more so the case of like, and this cathartic feeling. Yeah. It's very cathartic when you feel that it's like, ah, like I gave, I, I like gave my like body and like emotions and soul to this person that I'm portraying. Um, and yeah, that's, that's also rare <laughs> to feel that for me, but I have felt it a few times and, and it feels good. I don't know if I finish a scene and feel like <laughs> that and then feel like, ah, I can do anything, <laughs> but yeah, it does feel like a high. In the can you give a specific example of a time you felt that way on a set? I felt that a lot doing, um, well, not a lot, but a handful of times doing, um, this movie after Yang, which was Koganada's second movie. Um, and I got really lucky because I had a lot of scenes with Colin Farrell and he's, I think the most present actor that I've ever worked with, like he's so just like there and present and, um, absolutely like no putting anything on like he's just there and I remember my first scene that I had with him we were in this uh restaurant we were like sitting at like at the corner of this table and it was like a really quiet scene and there was only one shot of the whole scene it's like a few minutes long and there's only one shot so it's like and it's the two of us so it's like those kind of things are the best for me which is another reason why I just love working with Koganata because it's like there is no room like when it's a situation like that there is no room to not be present and to not just be there because that's what it's all about you know it's not about like getting a close-up shot and then focusing on the phone and then doing it's like just two people there and I remember I sat down with him and just like immediately everyone was still setting up the lights and everything but I sat down with him and I was like whoa like I'm I'm here and that's it. And like, we're these people and that's it. And anything that I say, I didn't realize this in the moment. I realized this after the fact. Um, but I was like, anything that I could have said in those like few minutes would have been there with that person and that's it. Um, so that's pretty cool to have, have those feelings. Um, that's such a beautiful description. Sorry, I could literally, I could talk, I could talk for a long time about these kinds of moments because they're truly why I keep doing this, you know? <laughs> like, they are the sole reason those min those few minutes that you have, like, every once in a while are the reason why I keep doing this to myself. <laughs> Here's a question that might give you an opportunity to talk about uh, more things like that. And this is also the point of the interview where I panic because we have limited time and I have so many other titles of yours that I want to get to. But here's a way to get at at least two things. It's a big question. I'm sorry. Of all the actors that you've worked with, whose process would you say is the most similar to yours? Where the second you hit set, you were immediately in sync. But then on the other hand, can you give me an example of someone with a different approach to the work who challenged you to adapt and maybe even adapt and try something new for the better? Ah, oh, that's a great question. Oh my God, I love that question. Um, I'm thinking about so many things. So honestly, what first came to my mind, and this is kind of like a cute answer, a little bittersweet, but like, um, so a long, long time ago, like eight, nine years, nine years ago now, 
I was on this ABC family show called Ravenswood that got canceled after a few episodes. But I remember I had like a couple scenes with Brett Dyer, who then I ended up dating for like eight years. <laughs> but um, I remember we were uh, like we met we we met and we like got along, but we didn't have any scenes together. And then this one episode came where we had the scene together and we just like handled ourselves the exact same way on on set. We like made the same amount of jokes. We got into the scene at the same time. Like like we just both uh, were very aligned. And I think that was something that like initially just really you know, attracted me to him or whatever. But um, yeah, that's kind of a bittersweet answer. Uh, but re more recently, I worked with uh, Owen Teague on this movie, Montana Story, that actually came out this year. Um, and I really love that movie. But him and I like, really worked well together. Like, there was a lot of this energy between our two characters where it was, um, there's so much resentment and like, bitterness and pain on the surface but deep down there's like this love we're brother and sister and there's this like love that we can't reach but we both so desperately want to access again and so like there were so many scenes where there's like this disconnect and this resentment this wall between us but to like feel that love we would just like hug each other before it takes we would just like share like really meaningful hugs or even just like hold each other's like hand and we kind of just both did that instinctively with each other. And um, that felt very connected and aligned and everything. I'm trying to think of someone who is very different than me. Owen is so incredible in that movie he's in that came out this year with Andrea Riseborough, uh, To Leslie. Oh, my that God. That movie is so – I wish more people were, were seeing and talking about that movie. Wow. I'll, I'll, see, I'll see it. You've, you've inspired me. I'll watch it. Yeah. Cause I think Owen is, um, Owen's a incredible actor. Like he's so technically and emotionally and all the things that you like want from, from a person on those levels. Like he just like gets it and like delivers and everything, but he's so unique and he's so vulnerable and his heart is just like out there. Just like honest. I just think he's, so I loved working with him so much. And I think he's so good in this movie we did, Montana Stories. I think he should win an Oscar or something. Like, I think he's so good in it. But, um, okay, I'll watch to Leslie. And I'll, I'll watch Montana Story. Okay, cool, cool. I can't think of any actors off the top of my head that just, like, worked so drastically different from me. I have one. I have one pitch in that department for you. Here, here's one that might be uh, that might fall into this category, just because I've never in my life seen a performance quite like this. What What about um, What about in Split? James, I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. Well, weirdly, like I don't know how James did that character. Like, I mean, I can't really speak about his methods or like what he did for that because it's so I it's so like demanding that type of role I like roles essentially like I really don't know how he managed to do that but from what I observed when we were on set together like he'd be like cracking his like jokes in his extreme accent as James and then like a matter of minutes later be like the little six-year-old Hedwig so I don't know how he did that, like, internally, but 
from what I observed, it was like magic. It was amazing. Um, and also he was so like present with us, like, cause we were all pretty new. Like that was the biggest thing I had ever done up until that point, um, by, by a landslide, you know? And, um, I think kind of similar for Anya and Jess. Um, so James was like, just like a very like kind of caring, um, and like, like big brother figure. Like he was so like there for us as well. So I don't really know how he did that. It wasn't like I was watching him and I was like, whoa, this guy is like in his world being this crazy method thing. And I'm like, don't get it. Like, I didn't see that. I saw him just be like cool James. And then all of a sudden being, you know, a British woman. There's there's a performance that I genuinely did believe deserved an Oscar that particular year. Yeah, no, yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, he deserves an Oscar. Owen deserves an Oscar. Colin deserves an Oscar. Well, I Colin really do. I I feel scared. Oh yeah, true. But yeah, he really, yeah, Colin could get a chance for a couple things this year. I think. <laughs> All right, let's get into White Lotus and. I guess I'll start with this. What what would you say is the biggest difference between your very, very per- first impression of Portia when you first signed on to take the role and then who she turned out to be the more you kind of prepped for production and I guess started to fill in her world between, you know, the lines on the page that you were given? Yeah, that's you're asking such good questions. <laughs> you really are. Um, yeah, I uh, that's that's a really specifically good question I think too for how I felt about Portia because Portia more specifically more than any other character I've played recently did change so much from when I first auditioned for her and read her character description and had this kind of idea in my mind of who she was and what she was going to be in the show I like when I was auditioning for her and at that point I I thought she was going to be kind of the more grounded, earnest, level-headed character of the show. Um, and then, and I, and I liked that, you know, because I think that those are kind of necessary. Um, maybe less show, less so in the white Lotus than in other projects. But like, I know there was a couple characters that were more along those lines in the first season. So I was like, Oh, maybe Porsche is going to be that for, for this season. But then as I started reading the episodes, I was like, Oh, she's kind of a little bit of a bitch. Oh, she's like self-serving. Oh, she's very, very like self unaware or unself aware. Oh, she's very miserable in an ironic way. Oh, she's a narcissist. Oh, she's literally a mini Tanya. Like there were all these things that kept exposing themselves. And I was like, oh, like there are things that are relatable about her and the place that she's at in her life. But there's also like deeply kind of problematic and fucked up things about her as well. So that kind of made it more fun and complex for me because I was like ooh, like she's not just this likable little grounded earnest sweetheart she's um a mess (laughs) so I actually found that exciting and fun because I'm a little bit twisted 
Aren't we all? You're boring if you're not a little bit twisted. Um, so one thing I heard you say in another interview was that um, usually you can describe the characters you play a little more acutely than you can with Portia. So given all those qualities and the fact that she makes a lot of decisions, you know, in the heat of the moment, she has some self-doubt, she's unaware of uh, of her true self and what she's really about. Did you have, I guess, kind of like a like an anchor or a constant for the character that no matter what decision she makes, like you always know it was based in some sort of consistent truth for her? Yes, it was this like deep, deep angst and craving to feel alive. No matter, like no matter the cost. Um, yeah, I know a little dark, but that's what it was. Like it wasn't a personality trait. It wasn't like, it was like this, I guess, desperation back to that word, but like, yeah, this like deep, yeah, it, no matter the cost, just like feeling alive, feeling fulfilled. That definitely, uh, that definitely is very, very present in in every ounce of your performance. So great success bringing that to screen. Cool. This next one, I have a feeling you're getting asked about this nonstop, but I, I obviously have to ask you about working with with Jennifer on the show, and I don't know. Hopefully, to get at it at a slightly different angle. Can you give me an example of maybe a scene where she was like just the right scene partner you needed, where because of whatever she was giving you in a moment, you were able to exceed your own expectations with a particular piece of material? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting. Gosh, your questions are great and so specific. I think uh, there's a scene, I believe it's in episode six and we're at breakfast and I kind of, I try not to have an idea of where, what exactly I'm going to do and how I'm going to say it. Cause that sucks. And that's the last thing that, you know, you want in a scene. <laughs> um, but I kind of did have this like subconscious, like idea of how the scene was going to go, but you actually can't ever have that, especially with, with Jennifer. Um, and I just, I just remember in that moment, like a mixture of Jennifer and kind of what she was doing. She was being extra chaotic in that scene. And then also Mike came up to me, like in one of my last takes, and he gave me this like note or thought that was like, whoa, that's so much better than what I was doing and what I thought. Okay, yeah, let's do it like that. And then I remember it like in the last take or two, um, just like kind of having a different motivation throughout the whole thing. And, uh, yeah. I have seen episode five. So given where that ends, I can't even imagine what the next morning's conversation is going to be. Yeah. Yeah. No, episodes six and seven are cray cray and times a jillion. Episode six and seven are, <laughs> are something else. I guess that's why they're not giving them to us just just yet. <laughs> I know. I'm so I want to see them so bad. I want to see how everything turned out. I wanted to touch on Portia's fashion style because that seems to be a very hot topic of conversation. Yes. 
So can can you tell us a little bit about maybe the conversations you had or maybe even your own personal ideas just in terms of how Portia's style reflects how she's feeling about herself, where she's at in life right now, things like that. Yeah, I've actually been really wanting to talk about this because I know, I'm aware that there's this like Twitter discourse, debate, conversation situation going on and people are very, very passionate and mainly upset and disturbed by Portia's style. Um, and at first I was like seeing those things because since the show's been going on, I know so many people watch it. I'm just way too freaking curious. So I've been like going on Twitter and looking up Portia and looking at my name just to see what people are saying. It's very, very scary. I wouldn't recommend it, but I'm just so curious. So it like keeps me coming back for more. And when I saw just like all of the Portia hate, at first I was like really bummed and like a little bit hurt, honestly. <laughs> like I was pretty sad about it, but then I was like, no, this is actually hilarious and fun because the whole point of a show like this is to like get people talking and people are talking about how annoying Portia is and how much she gets under her skin and how like and talking about her, her style and all these things. And I was like, that's so cool that this character that I got to be a part of bringing to life is making people have all these opinions. Like she's a fictional character and all these people are having opinions. Um, but it also made me feel like I just really like wish I had a Twitter so I could be a part of these conversations. Like there were so many tweets I saw that I was like, oh my God, I just want to freaking respond. I want to reply. I want to be a part of this. But yeah, I think obviously all of this that I have seen at least on Twitter specifically um, is intentional. Like Portia's style being like chaotic and ugly and a mess and not making sense and trendy, but in like a messy way, like that was very intentional. Um, Alex, the costume designer uh, who's done like who did last season and then has done like, you know, great other things. Um, I remember my first fitting with her, like I kind of, again, like almost like with Portia just as a person, like I had kind of imagined Portia in like kind of basic clothes and just like not wanting to like stand out and being just kind of like a normie. And then when I showed up to that first fitting, Alex had brought like the most eccentric stuff, like vintage finds, like trendy micro trend, fast fashion things, like just loud, chaotic things. And I remember being like, hmm, this isn't what I expected, but I kind of love this for Portia because she's so lost and she's trying so hard, like I said, just to like feel alive and to understand how she fits into the world and to like be fulfilled and to be excited. So I feel like that would be reflected in her wardrobe, but in a mess of a way, you know, like putting things together like that that are loud but don't make sense, you know, like, and I, and I think that, uh, that just really, I loved that idea. <laughs> and I also loved, um, I also loved how that informed kind of the internal of Portia even more. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, she's, she's a mess. She's like broke. She's lost. She's miserable. She's, um, insufferable, which is a word I've seen a lot on Twitter. And I think that, uh, you know, that's, is reflected in, in the way that she looks as well. <laughs> I have to let you go soon. So before, uh, before we wind this down, I have one very, very specific episode five question. We will brand this with a spoiler warning and will not release it until the time comes. But there's a very specific line of yours that I got hung up on. And it's when Portia tells Albie, have a nice life. <laughs> even if she, even if she did intend to totally cut him off and not speak to him again there, what do you think drove her to like flat out express that to him rather than, you know, just say goodbye and let everything fizzle out? You know what? I remember that line meaning a lot to me because I do think as much as Portia is so blinded by this desperate need to like be around something or, and someone that like makes her feel excited and alive and all of these things. Like, I do think there's a part of her that recognizes just like how truly sweet this guy is and how well he means and how safe and stable and healthy it could be for her. So I remember feeling like that there really was a sincerity and like a pretty deep sense of, even if it's buried a lot, but like a deep sense of actual loss for her that like she made this other decision and she hurt this guy and she's probably never going to see him again. So I remember in that moment being like actually kind of like emotional, like feeling that loss of like, and actually like he deserves to have a good life. Like, and there's this loss that I don't get to be a part of that good life because I'm lost and I, you know, crave this other journey. Um, so I think that's what it meant for, for me in that moment. This series just sends my head spinning <laughs> with, with all these characters who, who have so much, but also like don't have so many key elements of life to make them fulfilled and happy and stop wanting and reaching. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like, they all need a wake up call, don't they? Like, and I guess that's what happens <laughs> on this vacation. You know, some of them really get a wake up call, but um, yeah. Well, I cannot wait to see more of White Lotus season two and also all of the wonderful work you will probably have coming our way. Huge congratulations on the show and everything you've accomplished and big thanks for hanging out with us on Collider Ladies Night. Yay, thank you. Thanks for hanging out with me and asking such great questions and um, letting me just blabble. 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.